Hey, welcome to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. This is Kathleen Mercury coming to you from the soul of Missouri, or what there is of it as we bravely navigate remote learning. But I'm so excited because today I get to talk to you and you get to hear Adam Davis. Now, Adam is with Game to Grow. It's a really innovative program in the Seattle area where they use RPGs with kids and adults to expand social skills and even apply them in therapeutic settings. But what's really kind of cool is uh, we know that the pandemic has forged a lot of new ways of us connecting using the internet, using uh, teleconferencing. And so in doing that, they've been able to expand their services in terms of who they see, but they're also expanding their services to allow others to become trained in their methods so that others can use RPGs in settings like this, whether you're an educator or a librarian or corporate or wherever. So Adam, thank you so much for being on the show. Can't wait to hear more. Thanks for having me, Kathleen. I appreciate that. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, so just to build on what you were saying, we are, um, I represent Game to Grow. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we have been based in Seattle, and for years we've run our social skills groups using Dungeons and & Dragons and Minecraft in person. So we had participants come into the office in th- uh, three or four locations around the greater Seattle area to – uh, participate in these uh, social enriching programs using Dungeons and Dragons and Minecraft. And then when the, when COVID hit and we went into lockdown, we had a transition. We sort of triaged initially, um, mm-hmm. putting all of our groups online using Zoom. And I kind of you know braced for impact as a lot of us did um, in that mm-hmm. time period. And then as it turned out, the the running the groups over Zoom was was actually really helpful. Um, we, we discovered that instead of it being sort of a, a, a sorry impression of what it once was, it was actually even more important because so many people were so isolated, especially when that first happened before we'd all learned how to do this online, um, that it was, it was extra important to the families for those young people to have extra social contact. And so we realized that the online program wasn't um, so, you know, sort of the, the downgraded version of our in-person groups, it was actually a new opportunity to serve a broader audience. So we then expanded, um, based on our waiting list, we'd had people over the years who had wanted us to, you know, come down to Portland or go to San Francisco or Chicago or New York, um, or even people in Australia. And so then we realized that because we were all, you know, teleconferencing anyway, there were no geographic boundaries to our work. And so we expanded to now serve, internationally so we have we have young people in australia young people in malaysia and europe all participating together playing dungeons and dragons in a safe supportive way where they can you know build social confidence and connect with each other and and make friends it's like a pen pal 2.0 that's so cool i mean and i know that for me i haven't met with my um with one of my RPG groups, you know, up since uh, before COVID, another one, we did some online gaming and you're right. That connectivity, um, one feels good, you know, that you just obviously don't feel alone or anything like that. But then when you have those moments where you can step outside of yourself, sort of re-enter this sort of fantasy world, if there's ever a time where you need to like think heroically yeah. and have that sort of escape, like this is definitely it. Right. And it's been really interesting to see just how, I mean, a a lot of our our work is focused on social skills and a lot of the participants in our groups um, have some degree of social setback. So that's sometimes related to diagnosis and sometimes not. A lot of our kids are twice exceptional or they are struggling with something related to autism or ADHD or anxiety or depression. But what we realized in the midst of the COVID is that um, this kind of uh, isolation was really uncovering something that had already been there. This like loneliness epidemic that we can see across the country certainly um, was even more pronounced and even more problematic, even more dangerous in some aspects. So helping people connect in a way where they, you know, feel like their presence authentically matters, that they can make choices and make decisions that impact the world around them. It, it's so beneficial right now to feel like you have something you can contribute to where people are, are happy that you're present and showing up and they love your ideas and they give you compliments and uh, constructive feedback. It all feels like actual engagement in a time where it's really easy to kind of tune out or, you know, watch TV or scroll through the internet. A lot of our, you know, our participants are struggling right now because there's even less social contact, but now they can get online and they can see other human faces and they can, you know, laugh together and share stories together. It's been really beneficial for a lot of families. 
Um, oh, I, you know, and that's one thing too, because I can think of like several students who would absolutely benefit from this more than ever, which I will be more than happy to recommend them to you and send them your way. And we certainly hope that others do too. And we'll share information on how people can do that. Um, but going to the work at hand, especially since you're, and we don't have to get to this just yet, as far as like training for others to do similar things, but for what you do using RPGs, how like how different would this look to like a passerby as far as how you use this as a tool? Um, but then like under the cover, what's the difference between just somebody running an RPG versus your approach to it? Well, it's it's a it's a really good question, Kathleen. And one of the things that we always try to to compare it to is a, a intentionally facilitated role playing game session is what is to a role-playing game session, what an intentionally facilitated conversation is to a regular conversation. They look very similar. Someone walking by a, a therapy room or a teacher uh, having a, a conference with a family would look in and say, oh, that's just a, a conversation. Um, there are two people sitting together or a family sitting together and having a, a, a conversation that's supposed to cause insight, growth, and change. Um, mm -hmm. And the same thing is true for a role-playing game session facilitated by a game-to-grow facilitator or someone trained in our methods is it looks a lot like a really good game of role-playing games. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is, uh, in th the thing that is different about it is the way that the, uh, the, the facilitator approaches the game is not just focused on fun. It's not just focused on focusing on agreement. It is the, the participation structures are really intentionally put there to help the kids connect with each other, to build self-regulation skills, perspective-taking skills, um, uh, communication and collaboration skills, um, pretend play, planning, all of these things go into um, helping the the game master help the participants reflect on those abilities and then practice them and then gain some ability to get some feedback so they can uh, reinforce their development of those capacities. If you had a student who, or a kid in your group who has played RPGs before, would they notice a specific difference between how you run your games versus how they might play on their own? Um, so sometimes um, we have a lot of the participants that come to us having never played RPGs before. Um, and that's, those are my, my favorite people to teach because they don't have any preconceived notions. Um, right. So one of the things that is different between uh, a game run by a game to grow facilitator or someone trained in our methods and, and you know, the, the, average drop-in group may be the structure of the game and the focus on the, the characters in the story. So a lot of the work that we do really relies on the player understanding who their character is and role-playing. My, my background is in drama therapy. So we bring a lot of that, those elements into the, the construction of the game and the, the, the narrative elements are a big part of the, um, the work that we do. So when someone has had a lot of RPG experience where their character is mostly mechanical, and they come in and they can kind of wander around the world and poke at things and see what happens, more of a sandbox style game. The, our mm -hmm. games aren't, aren't really structured that way. Um, ours are way more focused on a narrative story arc where the characters go on journeys and overcome challenges. And I, I do a lot of um, asking questions about character growth and sort of reflecting on that character. We do a lot of work around uh, in our trainings. We talk a lot about how to leverage what we call um uh, narrative transference and aesthetic distance to help the player understand who their character is and the connection between them to really help them then um, build the confidence from their character, but then also use that character as an opportunity to gain some insight, maybe on maybe more maladaptive or, or uh, less useful participation uh, that they might have at school or in the family. So when you bring kids in or they come to you, do you just put them in groups by age? Do you put them in groups by ability or identified areas of need? How do you approach your groups? And I mean, and we've all been in RPG groups. I think that, you know, at times might be a little dysfunctional. Like how do you manage the dynamics between the groups that you build as you go? Sure. That's actually a big, a big part of our work. So uh, I'm, I'm, I feel confident that you agree with me here that, that teaching in, in, general is not just the teacher putting information into an open brain, right? This is the, the banking style of education. We can sort of throw that out. Um, a, a lot of uh, newer and also older educational paradigms involve peer modeling, peer work, uh, learning from other people in, in collaboration. And we do a lot of that as well. So we don't want to just say, okay, we have 12 year olds with autism in a group. 
Um, we want to look at the group as a dynamic uh, cohort that's going to be able to learn from each other, um, both in terms of um, positive and not so positive uh, impact. Because um, there's there's a lot of young people who are impulsive who come to our groups. And there are a lot of young people who are very risk averse who come to our groups. And I don't want to have a group of entirely um, young people who are struggling with impulsivity or the young people who are working on developing more comfort with taking appropriate risks. But those groups together, if I have a young player or even an old player, I mean, I have a, a player in, the, in their adult years who is has a very impulsive character and a player who has a very impulsive or very risk averse character because we all play you know we play the characters we need to play so to speak Mm -hmm. um the player who's really impulsive might see that the risk averse player's character doesn't get in so much trouble that they actually uh think before they act and sometimes that means they can make more tactical and and intent intentional decision making and that is a, a really excellent opportunity for some peer modeling whereas the risk averse player with the risk averse character might say wow my character never gets the spotlight in the story and that player that character that barbarian who always runs in and hits things with a stick like not always uh, successful but man this they really move the story forward and that's really an opportunity for those two players to see that there is somewhere in between a little bit of both the 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 yes and of those two characters is really going to be the 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 outcome we want them to have. And that's not the adult saying today, we're going to talk about impulsivity and how this is, let's talk about, you know, executive functioning. We, mm-hmm. we put it in, in practice. It's a simulation training approach almost where we're providing them opportunities to uh, practice skills, reflect on those skills, and then try new things next time. So how much do you find yourself leveraging the game when I say against, obviously we're not, you know, like you're, you're wanting to like work with them for them to be, you're trying to create opportunities where they're successful, but how much do you find yourself sort of leveraging the game against your participants or versus leveraging them against or with each other? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a melting pot. It's all yes. Uh And all of the above, the game is the structure. um, But the game is not the thing that it really is the the vessel Um, Mm -hmm. uh, or let me rephrase that. The game, the game is the structure and the vessel, but it's not the actual like soup itself. It's the bowl and it's the pot. Um, this okay. the soup that is the benefit that they're getting of is is a mixture of all of these things. It is the mm-hmm. rapport that they have with each other. It's the rapport that they have with the facilitator who can prompt them and support them in the struggles of the story and in the relational space that the game provides. Because a lot of the young people also come in fixated on their own ideas and inflexible and wanting the game to go in the way that they want it to go. They have that special power. They want to use it. They want you know to do all of these things. And then they have to now negotiate and work with other people. And so those things are prompted and then responded to. And that is really, it's a, it's a very active process. There's certainly planning that is involved by the game masters. And we create the in-game scenarios in order to ideally prompt and shape uh participation in, in, in a way that we hope supports insight, growth, and change. But of course, every day is different. And some players will throw a curveball. And then as, as any good game master knows, you have to adapt in order to respond to that. And sometimes the story will go in a different direction. We'll follow a random NPC because that's something that the players are excited about. And then that's where the story goes. And so it's a really a, a process of being responsive and mm-hmm. attuned to the players. And while also <laughs> building in the the intentionality at the beginning. So it's a, it's a, it's a both and sort of process there. Sure. Well, and let's go back to that building in intentionality. That's sort of my next question. What are the specific types of outcomes do you have? Because especially when you're working with such a wide range of ages, of people, of abilities, are there specific outcomes that you craft based on the specific groups or individuals, or is there sort of an overarching set that you work towards when you can as the situation sort of present themselves. Well, one thing I'll say is that we, we want to identify every individual as an individual. So we don't want to kind of like run them through a curriculum, so to speak. Sure. Um, so uh, having said that, there are also, you know, adventure modules that we will use over and over again because they're compelling stories. And then we can, mm-hmm. we can manipulate the sort of specifics of the situation to, uh, to meet that need. So like a certain kind of puzzle may look very different depending on the kinds of things we're hoping to prompt 
in our participants. So um, the kinds of things that we work on just categorically, we work on regulation skills. That's basically frustration tolerance. That's helping the players um, understand and navigate the the highs and the lows. Um, some of that is because a lot of the participants who come to us don't have a lot of comfort level with uh, frustration. They uh, tend mm-hmm. to uh, get get so so overwhelmed that they become dysregulated. And sometimes that results in in aggressive words, sometimes that re- results in leaving school, you know, th- those kinds of things. And what we want to do through the course of the game is build ex- some experience level being regulated. Mm-hmm. And that means pushing the comfort level outside of the comfort zone a little bit and then allowing them to regulate. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the, the game is a perfect opportunity so that when the, the student is in school and they have a pop math quiz and they say, oh, normally I would flip my desk over and leave and have to go to the counselor because I wasn't prepared for this quiz. And it's, you know, normally we have a schedule and now we don't have a schedule because there's a pop mm-hmm. quiz. Now I'm dysregulated. I want them to be able to say, well, I'm feeling so frustrated about this, but my character went into that room mm. and touched that chalice. And when they touched the chalice, the chalice dissolved. And then the room started to slowly fill up with lava because it was a trap that I wasn't expecting. And my character figured out when the room was filling up with lava, how to you know escape this room by climbing on some debris and climbing through an air vent. And now I can, I can, I can totally survive this math quiz because, you know, Gragnold the barbarian es- escaped a room filling up with lava and that's me. Right. That's the kind of uh, connection we want them to make between those kinds of skills. So regulation is one of the biggest ones we focus on because that's tends to be where no other perspective taking skill or collaboration skill or, or, you know, planning skill can work if you're dysregulated. That's just mm-hmm. core principle for every single participant who comes to our group. We, we, you, excuse me, we use the, the, the ebb and the flow of the game, the triumphs and the disasters to help them navigate staying regulated and then re-regulating when either good things happen or bad things happen because sometimes the game is so exciting you get that natural 20 you know that's got that can be dysregulating just like a critical fail can so that's one of the main things we focus on is is regulation and 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 as we are helping them um with that skill we work on collaboration skills that's another way that um a game in a in a game to grow context might look different than a, a traditional game is we really, really emphasize collaboration. We do that mm-hmm. through building the in-game scenarios so that they can, um, it re- requires players to have a sense of um, collaboration to get it to work. It's not just move the stone out of the way. It's the strong barbarian moves the stone out of the way. If that makes sense. It's like mm-hmm. the stone is in the way, but also it's frozen. And so the wizard needs to use the fire spell to melt the ice. And then the, the barbarian can move the stone out of the way. We really want to help the players understand that that other people can actually provide a really valuable resource in the world because <laughs> so many young people and, and a lot of older people as well, we tend to you know dehumanize each other. This is like a, mm-hmm. a, a once again a pervasive problem alongside with loneliness is this you know a massive amount of dehumanization where we just see each other as, as some value to be extracted from them as opposed mm-hmm. to the sort of richness of the human experience and, and, and the tapestry of the human experience that we can celebrate. So we want the players to come together and recognize that each other provides something that's that's rich and unique to each other. So they, they, we build that into the games as well. So we have um, regulation and collaboration. We also help them do some executive functioning and some planning. So that's another one of the core capacities we help the players work on because like logical sequencing is something that's hard to do. Understanding that just because something happened doesn't mean that it will happen every single time in that same sequence again. So we want to understand the sort of deductive and inductive reasoning that happens when with there's some gray area thinking around you know, multi-causal thinking and all that kind of um, additional executive functioning we want them to do. And that's that sometimes translates into, you know, um, doing your paying your bills on time or getting your homework done, writing down everything you need to do to get accomplished on a list and then checking them off. All those things are translations of the same thing, which is how do we sneak into this castle? There are guards around the front guards around the back, but there's also a wall we could climb over, right? This is the, the translation of that kind of thinking into real life is, huh, I have to uh, figure out how to refinance my house. What do I need to do to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, how do you know when you're successful? Because I would imagine success is not obviously beating the big monster, but success is transference 
into their lives where they're taking what they're practicing in this experimental safe structured space and, and starting to change and adapt and shift their behavior outside of the game. Like, how do you know it's working? Hmm. Um, so we're, doing research now, which is really exciting. With pre and post surveys, we got some funding to do some uh, more formal research, which I'm really excited about because to this day, there's not a lot of research out in in the world of intentional and therapeutically applied role-playing games to show its sort of white paper efficiency um, and effectiveness. So we're we're working on some of that right now. Most of the data that we have is is anecdotal. A lot of our participants are youth. And so we have a lot of parental um, feedback that says, oh, they no longer need an IEP or they uh, they were invited to a birthday party or more importantly, they had a party and invited other people who showed up. Right. Those kinds of things are, are uh, really useful uh, sort of frameworks. We also see, because we work with participants over a course of, of months and sometimes years to see them as they progress and they change. We'll have a player who, um, you know, used to kick someone in the leg, not uh, overly aggressively, but, you know, just like a, a, a way to say, stop talking. I'm tired of listening to you talking. They would just go give them, give them a little uh, kick in the shin. And now that we've worked with them for a, a period of time, now that's a, that's a regulation capacity that I was mentioning before. Now they can verbalize that and say, hey, I've noticed you've talked for a long time and I'm ready to talk now. Um, those kinds of things we see through the course of working with people. Um, we, I, I've worked with siblings who have gone from being very uh, aggressive uh, towards each other verbally and sort of undermining each other to then be able mm-hmm. to support each other. And then the parent will say they, they didn't used to even ride in the car together without fighting. Uh, they didn't used to eat dinner together. And now they're able to um, like, share laughs and like decide on what TV show to watch together. So it's, it's not even that we're looking at like uh, these, these big sort of check boxes on, on, you know, statistical data sheets. We're looking at those like small fugitive moments where people can connect with each other and celebrate each other. And sometimes that's someone showing up and the other person saying, Hey, we missed you last week. Mm-hmm. You know, those, yeah, those, and I- those are the moments. Sure. Well, and especially since, you know, being a teacher and working with the population that I do, which can be very similar, obviously, you know, uh, working with gifted kids, um, you know, and seeing the amount of growth, especially since I teach them in seventh grade and in eighth grade, is I can see how much they've changed, Mm -hmm. you know, even in six months or in a full year. And, you know, that's so helpful when I'm working with them. So, you know, so I, when it comes to like, if someone's saying, well, they should be able to like, you know, like, you know, like you said, like having like hard data, sometimes it's, you know, there's things that transcend that. And, um, and then you, but you see the, you see the benefits, you see the, um, you see the success. So let's talk about the, this remote environment that you're working in, because one of the hardest things I think for teachers and students right now, um, when you're in remote settings is, engagement, mm-hmm. um, not just investment in what you're doing, but also how, what strategies do you employ when you're working in a specific like Zoom teleconferencing environment? What are strategies that you have found worked and don't work when you're conducting your games remotely like this? So there's there's sort of a, an implicit benefit of being a, in a game of Dungeons and Dragons where the participants generally want to be there, which I think is really important. So there's uh, some of these things will translate easily into the other schools settings and some won't as, as easily. Um, we ritualize a lot of the process too. And we talk about this in some of the trainings we do is that I will ask my participants every single session to look around them. Um, find something that is distracting, put your phone on, do not disturb, close your other tabs. And we really go through the process of acknowledging that um, mm-hmm. and not um, shaming them for doing it. Cause that's really hard to sit at a computer and be focused on zoom when discord is popping up. And in my case, Slack is popping up. And then I've got text messages from family and all the, these notifications are coming at you. That's not, um, that's not unique to young people in, in, in uh, zoom school. That's, cross uh, all of them. So I, I do a really in, uh, intentional sort of explanation of how I'm feeling today. And here I am closing my tabs. I'm minimizing that. I'm silencing Discord. And I will even say, I mean, I'll talk about Discord. And that's another way that I will connect with the young people because kids mm-hmm. are on Discord these days, you know. Yes. And um, 
So I, I will do a lot of ritualizing that process at the very beginning of the session, which is really useful. Um, I also will, because we work so much on building rapport with them, that having having that rapport means I can call it out also because they we have enough strength in our relationship that I can say, Hey, it looks like you're, you know, I've seen lots of colors and splashing colors on your face. Like, it looks like that's something that's not our zoom. Can you, you know, let me know what's going on and come back. Cause it looks like you're, you know, maybe got a YouTube video up or something like that. Maybe it's, you know, you're playing a, a another, another video game. And most of the time that turns into, yeah, sorry, I got a notification and somebody shared this with me. And, so most of it comes into uh, responding with some uh, warm affect, some request, mm-hmm. a very clear request, not do that. Um, and sometimes I've even done a like, everybody hold up your hand and repeat after me. I, your name here. <laughs> I promise that I will not open up YouTube. I promise that I will t- silence my phone. I promise that I will not play Among Us um, while we are doing our sessions. Um, yeah. And that that just sort of open conversation is is hard. Um, but mm-hmm. necessary. Do you require kids to have their cameras on? That's, uh, I mean, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. We make a, a request that they keep their cameras on. Um, some participants will become dysregulated if they feel like they're being watched like that. So it's a sort of a yeah. case by case basis. Um, mm-hmm. The expectation is that everyone has their camera on and their microphone on as if we were in person with a few exceptions. Um, but what I've noticed is that the people who are have camera off are much more likely to be opening up other windows or, you know, and I, I have, we have had, um, you know, uh, parents walk through the room and say, and their microphone is on, but their camera is off. And then I'll hear the parent in the background say, what are you doing? Are you on YouTube? Uh, so sometimes kids get caught when their cameras are, are off in the background. So, um, it happens, right. And it's not, there's no, there's no silver bullet to the, to the issue, but keeping cameras on, um, also is a great way to help them be engaged. It's like a feedback loop. And this is one of the hardest things to, to navigate is that they don't understand the feedback loop that, that impacts them when they're in a, in a teleconferencing environment, when they're disengaged, they will be, you know, their camera is off and they're kind of looking at their phone or whatever. And then that will mean that they're getting that sort of dopamine rush from whatever is on their phone. And so it's pulling them away from the video and more and more and more until it's harder and harder and harder to come back. So that's why it's really important. We really try to focus on it at the very beginning and make the expectations really clear so that it doesn't become something that to come back from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because that's one of the greatest struggles too, you know, is, and not just a keeping kids focused, but also being able to build community, Mm -hmm. um, as it relates to zoom groups. I mean, how, I mean, I would imagine that groups that met in person probably made the transition really well, Mm -hmm. um, to zoom just because they had that, you know, previous in-person contact. How different is it when you're working with groups who have been formed completely remotely at the start? It's, it's, it's very different. It's a, that's a really good point. I think a lot of the groups that were, that were in person and then transitioned to online, they sort of took that challenge as like, as a team, they, they needed to overcome this challenge of transitioning online. Um, and some, some, every group is different. I'll say that again and again. Um, I think the groups that have started off online, um, have been, uh, some of the eh, every kid's different. Some some of the groups have started off with a strong desire to please and make sure that they're they're sort of following the rules of this new engagement method, um, mm-hmm. and they have been really great at being fully present the whole time. And others, because they're saturated in this online world, uh, struggled a lot more. Um, and it really is a mm-hmm. is a case by case basis on that. And the the journey of sort of standardizing the everyone needs to do this in this way has been really important, but also making sure to say, to b- build those relationships independently. We've had some players who started off no camera and only would you know selectively unmute to say things when prompted. Um, and that is where they were at the very beginning because of their you know struggle with emotional regulation. So over the course of 10 weeks, by the end of the 10 weeks, their cameras are on. And that's another one of these sort of metrics of comfort and, and, that relational development is that they felt safe being on camera. And it just took them five, six, seven weeks before they were 
leaving their cameras on for longer. They would have it only during the beginning conversation part and then not later on or vice versa. And that was really also using the, the camera as a, as a metric, so to speak, of their comfort level being with other people is, is another sort of outcome that we, we can look at as them becoming, building that relationship. But by the end of it, their camera is on. You know, I've had participants who are nervous because they have uh, assistive devices or they have like a, a comfort object that they hold onto that they were feeling nervous about um, being okay. on camera and showing people. And then as their relationship gets built, the camera can go on, they can feel safe because they have an assistive device or they have, you know, a stuffed animal or something like that. And then the other players don't make fun of them. That's a slow process of building that comfort. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, what's funny. Cause yeah, I was thinking about, uh, back when my students were in, in school and, and, and their own, you know, I have hundreds of beanie babies in my classroom hmm. and that's because kids love stuffed animals, even when they're snarly eighth graders and <laughs> will have their favorites. And it's just, it's something to hold. It's something to fidget with. And beanie babies are pretty small and they've got lots of fun details. So if you really like fish, it's a pretty good looking fish stuffed animal as opposed to that. So um, I always suggest, I, I never would have thought that when I was a teacher, how much, uh, how important stuffed animals would be. Um, but no, I think that's, cause I think what you're talking about there though, with um, groups and, um, and building that community, um, how challenging it can be. But, um, but when it happens, I mean, I definitely have classes that are very interactive with each other and they talk a lot with each other. They, you know, like, it's a big argument heading up into Thanksgiving about cake versus pie. You know, <laughs> words were words were said. Um, but then I've got other classes who um, really quiet on Zoom. But now that we've reopened, you know, I was kind of laughing. I'm like, my gosh, I couldn't get you guys to talk on Zoom and in person. I can't shut you up. And they're all <laughs> laughing, you know, because um, it just it's it's just it's such an artificial environment in which to try to find mm -hmm. um, some sort of community. So. When you said like end of 10 weeks, like, do you run your class, your classes or your groups? Are, is there like an expiration date to them? Is it like, a, like, how, like how many hours a week is a session? Like, just curious, what's the structure like? So we do a quarter system where we have mm -hmm. 10, 10 weeks and sometimes it's nine, sometimes it's 11. We sort of follow the school schedule. Um, uh -huh. we, and we do that four times a year. So we have, mm -hmm. you know, our, our winter quarter starts in January coming up. Um, it goes for 10 weeks. Um, the participants are expected to sign up for that 10 week period. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how we sort of structure our adventures where it, it's like a chapter in a book. Uh, the adventure goes for that 10 weeks. Every, uh, every week is a, is a single 90 minute session. So they show up at the same time uh, every day of the week, whatever day of the week that is, we run groups five days a week now, um, even in the morning, mm -hmm. sometimes for our European clients. But we, um, so the participants show up for that same 90 minute period a week and they, they show up for 10 weeks. Um, at the end of that 10 weeks, it doesn't expire, so to speak. They can re-register for the next quarter and most of our participants stick around. Um, I think mm -hmm. I said that earlier. Um, some come for like a, a single quarter and then they've built some skills. They've built, so they've gained a hobby and they're ready to go play you know, at school, they're ready to go play in a community setting. That's great, right? We we don't see that as a failure. We see that as the kids or the participants got what they needed and they're ready to ready to move on. That's a graduation kind of um, mm -hmm. experience there. And then we have some participants who this is like going to the gym for them. This is the way that they continue to build and, and shape and practice being social in a way. And we've had participants for as many as five years who started off, you know, at um, as a, as an adolescent, and then now they're going to college. And that's been a really exciting journey to, to work with so many of these young people in, in this sort of longitudinal way. We've had participants from, you know, age 13 to 18. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a huge developmental time where that person starts building some independence and some real, real structured identity. And then, uh, a participant even, uh, who'd been with us for a while, um, at the end of the session, they, they stood up and they said, I have an announcement to make. I, going to college soon. And I wanted to let everybody know because this group is like my second family. Mm. That's so nice. Yeah. And that's, that's so, someone who's, who's been told that they wouldn't, you know, they, they weren't going to function in social groups that they would need, you know, help throughout their life with, with counseling before they'd be able to, to function in a social group. And now thanks to some intentionally facilitated dungeons and dragons, they're going to college. That's amazing. How many hours a week, do you spend in sessions? Like how, um, how much is like on, ca on camera contact time for you? In, in the actual D and D sessions I run, um, I run five a week right now. Um, mm -hmm. 
we have different, we have, we have 12 facilitators across game to grow. Um, not everyone runs the same number of groups. Some run one and we have a facilitator, Akira, who runs seven, seven or eight a week. Um, so that's, you know, a lot of hours a week, uh, in, in there. So that's for me, that's, you know, how long is an individual session and 90 minutes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I, that's how actually about how long I like my RPGs to be. Like, I like to be about movie length, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of like that act one, act two, act three structure. Because after about two hours, I mean, pff, running a game, like, I'm toast. So that's the thing, like, <laughs> as far as, you know, like the how much, just thinking about like running these groups, you know, especially if this is what you're doing, like, all the time, like, just how personally um, draining this could mm-hmm. be for you personally. It, it can be absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and every group is different and I will, some groups are, are much more improvised and the, the participants are generating a lot more of the content so that I'm more, more responding to them. And some I am building the game and, and prompting and supporting them a lot more actively. So every, every group has a different level of, of actual, mm-hmm. you know, effort, um, so to speak. And I think all the other, other game masters would agree. I have teen groups and I have groups, um, that are younger. We have, we run, we serve kids as young as eight and as old as in their adult years. So Mm -hmm. uh, those groups are obviously very different. Uh, uh, Maintaining engagement with 10 year olds on zoom is very different than maintaining, you know, people in their thirties. Um, so I can imagine. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about your training programs because, you are now offering training sessions for people who um, are in mental health, people who are um, educators. And I think you said, is there a third group that you're doing training for? We have uh, mental health uh, educators and then community members. Right. Right. Because especially for um, listeners who aren't necessarily in a school, but in libraries or otherwise, then certainly this could be applicable. So so you are teaching your method so that other people can do this on their own, correct? Yes. So the 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 methods that we use in game to grow originally started uh, Adam Johns and I founded uh, game to grow before that we ran a, a for-profit company called wheelhouse workshop and we've been building these methods for about 10 years um, and we always wanted to be to be more than what we could do so Adam Adam Johns and I founded a nonprofit so that we could expand it and and hire and and serve more people in Seattle and then we have 12 facilitators now we're we're serving 130 people a, a week in around the world and we want to uh, do that we want to support more people we want to we want to get this out there even farther so um the training program is the way that we want more people to benefit from this kind of work so um we brought on elizabeth kilmer who's um the, our director of education and training and she's helping flush out the education program in the way that we can get it out into more communities we really want to take this mindset this approach to intentional play and we want it to be in schools and hospitals and corporate boardrooms all around the country and all around the world so the the training program is the way that we do that right now we have um every um tree as we call it in the training program the therapists the educators and the community leaders all have different uh level one level two and level three um the the Mm -hmm. therapists get a, a special sort of uh seal when they graduate from the third level of, of the therapist tree, which is really much more focused on therapeutic outcomes, a lot more um, people who've, who have a lot more degree of need. Um, the educator tree focuses a lot more on aligning the uh, in-game supports with, with maybe more academic or educational outcomes. Some of that looks like group work. Some of that looks like uh, self-regulation skills, like we already talked about, um, mm-hmm. symbolic thinking, those kinds of outcomes may be more related to both educational and academic. By that, I mean like reading, writing, arithmetic, but also your ability to develop those 21st century skills that are going to help you in an academic and then vocational setting. And then the community leaders um, training program is effectively the all of the things that go into those other programs except for we're not working on uh, learning targets because people who are you know working in community settings boys and girls clubs but don't have the same degree of need to focus on that and less focused on specifically trauma and other kinds of uh, high need constituents so the the community leader one is a little shorter those train that training program is a little bit shorter because it's not focusing on those other things. And it's really just focusing on building a really intentional play group that helps um, young people, old people, anywhere in between um, have a safe and supportive environment to, to build on interpersonal confidence and help build community. And I think once again, I said this again and again, I said this last time we talked, it's so important right now more than ever with the, those of us that are 
locked down, we might be feeling isolation for the first time, um, mm-hmm. but we're not experiencing loneliness for the first time. I think this is really a, a thing that we're realizing is a, is a big issue. And I keep seeing this in news uh, articles about just how this, the impact of isolation is um, really impacting people right now. And loneliness is, there was a, a book written by the former attorney general Vivek Murthy um, called Together. And he unpacks this really in a really nice way, just how this was all pre-COVID too, the, um, the loneliness epidemic across the world, but especially in America right now is something that we have to address. And I think there's no better way to do that than community leaders bringing people together to like create stories, share laughter, roll some dice um, and have a great time together. And I think that's the, I, I don't like to have favorite trees, but I really love the community tree because it's all about bringing people together and connecting and building those relationships. Um, do you offer guidelines when it comes to wanting to run intentional play sessions versus when you might inadvertently be suddenly doing more group therapy and how to sort of be mindful of that. Because I mean, for myself in one of my after school clubs, um, it like is a gay straight alliance at my middle school and we had built a safe space and kids began sharing things that were intensely um, challenging, you know, as far as mental health goes. Mm -hmm. Um, And while they were drawing a lot of support from each other, um, I very quickly, you know, alerted the administration that some things are coming up here that are certainly beyond my ability. I mean, obviously making sure the kids are okay, getting that, making sure that they had access to, you know, counseling and other resources like that was certainly important, but we ended up having to put a pause on the club for a while Mm. because they didn't want me to be doing group therapy and I did not want to be doing group therapy. So what is the difference when you're approaching these training groups? How are you approaching this so that people are operating within their appropriate professional wheelhouse? So, so much of it is identifying that. And, and Mm -hmm. we have disclaimers at the beginning that say, um, do not act outside of your competence. And we, that, that is sort of this know thyself approach to training facilitator training to help people know when they're acting outside of their competence and how to refer out. Um, and that's something we even work on in our internal trainings for, for game to grow facilitators is when do you need to consult and when do you need to refer out? And when, when are you, um, when people talk about trauma, when people talk about these things that requires more, um, more competence in a specific sort of, of, of uh, thing. People, people start talking about um, eating disorders and that is a thing that is definitely important to address for that young person to help them uh, address this issue in their life. But very rarely is that a thing that I would advise, you know, a, a non-therapist to, to talk about outside of that is a, this is something that's important and I care about you and I'm going to help you talk to someone who can help you better. Um, so that's a big, a big part of it is making sure that our, our, our facilitators understand where their competence is and where it's not. And sort of having that, um, comfort level by, uh, to, to, to know that you shouldn't address those things and how do you then make that referral and building a referral network is also a really important part of the process, knowing who the therapists are in your area that you can refer out to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what else is going on? Any other fun uh, fun things happening with Game to Grow that you want to make sure we talk about? Sure. Well, um, we talked, I think, last time about Critical Core, um, and mm-hmm. that has been a real exciting labor of love. Um, for those that aren't aware, Critical Core was a Kickstarter project we launched in 2019 um, that was a beginner's box for therapeutic uh, application of role-playing games for any of the three categories we just talked about. And uh, we we launched this on Kickstarter in 2019. It's been a really uh, interesting product because uh, everyone who works at Game to Grow, we are facilitators. We are writers to a certain extent, but we're not historically uh, product managers. So it's been a really a fantastic process of learning and um, overcoming the setbacks and living the kind of mission that we talk about, about, you know, learning through struggle. And um, <laughs> we're, we're going now, though, to production, which is really exciting because this has been, you know, um, a very long labor uh, that our whole team has worked on, um, Adam Johns especially. And we've been working with people in, in Hong Kong who are uh, through the Gary Bowen 
um, organization who have helped set up the graphic design. It's been a really fantastic, Evan Chang has been working on it. Um, Virginia Spielman has been working on it. So it's a really fantastic collaboration, international um, collaboration to put this product together. And we're going to production at the end of the month. So really exciting to have that finally out into the world. Um, The product, the the pre-order store for that is closed, but people can still learn more about it uh, at Mm -hmm. gametogrow.org slash critical core. Um, you can go to the Kickstarter page and still see all the videos and stuff. And then there's even a, a sign up link. If people want to learn more about that specifically, they can um, sign up to be informed when it goes out to the public. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to ask about. Um, when you're, you because you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons is specifically the game that you use in your settings. When it comes to the training groups um, that you're doing to help people to do this on their own, is it system specific like D and D or is it something where you're teaching like the set of skills that they could apply to any role play game system? They could apply it to almost any role playing game system. I can't say all because I have not played all role playing game systems. So I don't know. Um, The reason why uh, I use Dungeons and Dragons in my groups is because I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, That's Mm -hmm. the main reason why it's, it's the, the one that, that, I use in my groups and most of the game to grow facilitators use in theirs. We pull in parts of other games. Um, I've pulled in pieces of the strange, um, uh, a Monty cook game. I've pulled in, um, some, a lot of, a lot of homebrew stuff. There's a, a game that was donated to us called dark matter, which is like D and D and space. And I've used that. Um, we've used, uh, no, thank you evil, um, which was, is a great game for younger kids. Uh, also made by Monty cook. Um, so we, we have, um, uh, delved into other games. Dungeons and Dragons is the main one we use in our program, but the training program does not require in any way that uh, people are using Dungeons and Dragons. It's all about the, um, the the core capacities that I sort of uh, talked about before, aligning those with the in-game scenarios. So the really the the only requirement for a role-playing game that's utilizing our method mostly is that it is a collaborative game. Uh, it is a role-playing game. It has a story, and there's some sort of randomness element in there. Uh, so there's, that could be dice, that could be you know d20s or d6s or d10s. It doesn't, that part doesn't matter. But the navigating the um, the challenges of regulation sometimes come with that randomness of I thought this was going to work, but now it's not. Um, right. So those kind of elements are are consistent across all of it. The the critical core set that I just talked about um, is a its own role-playing game system. It's built on the uh, open gaming license from Dungeons and Dragons. So the critical core system is sort of like a D&D light. Hmm. That's cool. Well, Adam, thank you so much um, for sharing your time with me. Um, and certainly with all of our listeners, because I think especially if people are wanting to um, run role play games, because even like, even if you just like running role play games anyway, like you would be doing this, you could be doing this, you are doing this. Um, like your training might just give people an additional set of skill sets just to deepen your ability as a game master, as well as like when you're trying to create certain types of experiences for your players, I mean, inadvertently or even intentionally, (laughs) you know, trying Mm -hmm. to create, uh, these moments for growth as well. Um, I think that's super cool. And you are absolutely accepting, um, additional, uh, participants now too. So if, if people are interested, and referring um, children and adults to you, you're taking those, you, ha- you have openings available, correct? Yes, we're in the middle of re-registering for winter right now. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, we'll have some open spaces for winter and then we essentially expand when we have demand. So mm-hmm. if people are interested and in wanting to join the Game to Grow groups or refer people to the Game to Grow groups, we will, we will expand to serve essentially. So um, if people are interested, we have a waiting list on our website if we are full um, so people can can stay informed. That's how we expanded the last time was people joined our waiting list. And then as soon as we could, we reached out and then they were able to sign up. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, so where can people find you directly if they want more information? Gametogrow.org is the best place to go for any and all of the things we've talked about. Gametogrow.org slash training. You can learn all about the various different uh, training opportunities. We have the three uh, tiered and tracked programs I mentioned before. We also have consultation groups. So people who are already running D&D groups in the therapeutic context or not can go uh, join. And that's a, that's a group consult, essentially. So the, the participants can share ideas with each other. Um, they can they learn from each other's successes and challenges. Uh, it's a really great opportunity there. We're, we're going to be launching uh, Game Master sessions as well so that it's mm-hmm. not directly tied in with our 
training program, but that's more of a, a group opportunity for people who are wanting to become better game masters to um, basically join a group that has a structured process of giving feedback to each other so they can help each other become better game masters. There's a re requirement at higher levels of training that they have certain hours of game mastering experience. Otherwise, the higher levels of training don't won't make any won't make sense uh, if you don't haven't played enough uh, and and facilitated enough games. So we have groups that are going to help people um, work on that specifically game mastering experience. Um, all of that is at gamedegrow.org/training. We have um, all kinds of things on the website. We can also be found on Twitter at at game to grow with T O not the number two, and on Facebook mm -hmm. and Instagram if you're an Instagrammer. Well, that's very cool. I hope that. Um, people take advantage of the many different services that you're offering from both running your own groups to um, participating in trainings and referring kids to you as well. So thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good to be back on. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Well, this has been another fun episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. This has been Kathleen Mercury, and you can find all my game design teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.com. And until we speak again, stay well, stay safe. We're so close to the ends, friends. We're so close. You got to believe, wear your mask, stay connected, and keep having fun. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilip, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend, Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games in Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.